Southbridge, you are invited. This Tuesday night, uh, we're going to be playing the movie uh, 58, the film 58, referring to Isaiah chapter 58 and the 58 fast. You'll learn more about that if you come on Tuesday night. There are tickets available. I just asked the gentleman who's heading up this project for us on Tuesday night, this Tuesday night, November 15th. I believe it's at 7 o'clock. You can check your worship program for more details. We'll be playing this movie. If you want tickets, you have to go to our website, southbridgefellowship.com. And so if you have an iPad, you're at an extreme advantage right now. Uh, as soon as tickets are gone, um, we will uh, be able to close the doors on that. But I believe there's a little bit over 100 tickets available still right now. It'll be right here in Theater 9, and uh, you come be a part of this. This is a, a reality. What an amazing act of worship. Jesus says that that which we do unto the least of these, we do unto him. When he was hungry, we fed him. We gave him a drink of water, and righteous people will say back to him the day of judgment. When did we do that? He says, whatever you did unto the least of these, you did to me. And uh, you're going to see in this movie a presentation about how extreme poverty in this world could be ended in our generation, see what the previous generation did. And uh, what if it didn't and we tried? (laughs) So what? So we continue to give drinks of water, we continue to visit the poor, we continue to try and bless them. We talked about justice last week. What an amazing opportunity to give an act of worship back to God to care for those when we've been entrusted with so much. And so if you want to know more about that, Tuesday night, come here at the movie theater where we meet on a regular basis, but make sure you bring a ticket so that we don't uh, close you out of that and uh, make you watch it on, online or at home or something later. We'd love to have you. And uh, if you're uh, with us today as a guest, we want to welcome you and say uh, just a special hello if you're in Theater 14 or maybe you're watching on the internet. We'd love to meet you in person at some point in time. Uh, but if you're here physically present with us this morning, you just look through your worship program. It's a great, a great practice to do on a regular basis. We have people that do a lot of work to put that together to make sure there's accurate and helpful information for you. You can learn more about our church by doing that. Whether you're a regular attender or a member or you just came for the first time today, if you did just come for the first time today, uh, we're really grateful that you're here. We want to give you a gift today. And maybe you already grabbed a popcorn box. You think you already had the gift. We've got another gift for you. <laughs> we want to show you how much we appreciate you coming and worshiping here with us at the movie theater. And then also, if you turn in your connection card, which is in your worship program, Fill it out, tell us your name, whatever, whatever information you're comfortable giving us. You take that out to the first-time guest kiosk today. We'll make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International that rescues women and children out of slavery, oftentimes sex slavery, the majority of the time out of sex slavery, sometimes out of labor slavery as well, and uh, keeps them in a safe house. costs $250 a month to keep someone in a safe house and uh, tell them about the love of Jesus Christ and equip them to be able to go out and live a different life than they were living before they were rescued. And so we challenge you to turn that card in today, and a donation will be made on behalf of that card. If it's your second or third time, you never filled the card out before, we won't tell. Go ahead and fill it out to you and uh, turn that in today as well. And today we're going to continue in our series that we've been doing entitled Four. And if you haven't been with us, the premise of our series is that some research was done by some guys named Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. They wrote a book called Unchristian. In their book, what they did is they surveyed a lot of people in our culture that are outside evangelical Christianity. And by that, I don't mean they just don't attend church. I mean, they're atheists, they're agnostics, they're Islamists, they're Buddhists, they're some ist other than Christianist. You know, there's some kind of ist that's out there. What do they think of born-again Christians? What do they think about people that call themselves followers of Jesus? And what they found out is that overwhelmingly they thought we were judgmental, they were hypocritical, they were anti-gay, that we love war, that we're anti-people in many regards. And a statement stuck out in the book to me was that we're becoming famous for what we're against. So the question we've been asking ourselves as a church, so what are we for? And ultimately we're for what Jesus said, that the greatest commandments are, we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is ultimately for the glory of God. And we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, the first four of which are about loving God, and the last six are about loving our neighbor, all ultimately for the glory of God and how that looks for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue that series today. Let's pray before we open up God's Word. Father, 
We thank you for your truth. Will you please sanctify us with your truth? Will you please wash your word over top of us today as we come to you? Remove lies, remove deception. There are so many that are being believed that have walked in through these doors today that they're not good enough. They've sinned too much. They're too far from you. That they, Maybe they are, that they're perfect or whatever spectrum that we're on and the deception that's out there. Father, will you please cleanse our minds of those things, sanctify our minds with your truth. Don't let us live by lies. Please block the enemy from this place, the accuser from this place. Will we spend this time in your word? Thank you for the sweet time we can come together corporately and worship you. We know you can speak to us at any moment. Will you speak to us now? Speak to us through your word and transform us and use us to transform this world for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we get started the message today, I want you to think back to when you were in elementary school. And I'll pause for some of you. That's a long time ago. So I'll just give you a couple moments to get back there. Remember when you were in elementary school? And there were certain things that were probably true of each one of our elementary school experiences. Do you remember doing fundraisers when you're in elementary school? Isn't that a great method to motivate or manipulate the community to give money to the school? They take a cute kid, they put him out on the front porch of somebody's house, they sell him something they don't need or they don't want, but how can you say no to like Johnny's out there, we need new textbooks, you know, and you could give me 10 candy bars, I know I'm on a diet, you know, whatever type thing that's going on there. And you feel, feel like you have to do that. And maybe you remember being the student, and I remember doing this, going door to door and selling like magazines, something that's low cost and high profit, magazines, candy bars, popcorn, some things that you would sell door to door. Why did you do that? Do you remember your motive? Did you do it because you wanted to impact future minds of America? Buy new textbooks for the second graders, and you were a third grader, right? Is that what you want to do? Or you wanted, you were probably really concerned about standardized testing. (laughs) So you wanted the aptitude to be really high in your school district because you wanted academia to be so important to you as a third grader. Let me tell you why I did it. I did it because they gave us rewards. And they would give out a book that said something like, if you sold a thousand of these things and you get a fluffy teddy bear, I want a fluffy teddy bear, okay? If you sell 2,000 of these magazines or widgets, whatever you sold, then you get baseball cards. All right, now we're talking. If you sell like 30 gazillion, you can have a 19-inch black and white TV with a radio on the front of it, right? It's like, that's awesome. I want electronic devices. And maybe some of you remember what this is like. And I remember one year. Going and selling, I don't even remember what I sold, but going and selling all this stuff. And the prize that I wanted was a boombox or a ghetto blaster to like blast the ghetto, even though I lived in suburbia, right? A ghetto blaster. I know I'm dating myself here. This is before iPads and iTunes and iTouch and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. Before any of the iPods, it doesn't matter. And this was well before small speakers could sound good. Okay, Bose had not like revolutionized everything. If you had a small speaker, it was twangy and tinny and did not sound good. You'd have like a big speaker to have a good sound. And I wanted a boombox. Boomboxes back then looked something like this. Okay, we'll give you a little picture. For those of you as well behind, before your time, had cassette players in it. You actually had to go to the record store and buy music physically. You couldn't download it on the computer because we didn't have computers. <laughs> it's crazy. But anyway, some of you are like, well, how old is this guy? But anyway, I remember I wanted one of these things I carried around on my shoulder, kick it with some Run DMC, MC Hammer, You Can't Touch This, you know, I'm doing my thing. Whatever the songs were, it was, that was before Ice Ice Baby. But anyway, whatever the songs were at the time, had my peg pants, had little lines cut in the side of my hair cut. I thought Brian Bosworth was real cool, for those of you who heard of him, and he was an idiot. But at any rate, I was, I was motivated to get this boombox, and so I go out, I sell like a gazillion widgets, whatever they were, and I remember I was going to get the prize. And it came, and I remember thinking, the box looks kind of small. And I open the thing up, and it's a little bit taller than a cassette player and about five inches wide. It was a mini boombox. These little speakers on the front, just a little bit bigger than a cassette tape, and kind of radio that never works on the top of it. I was like, what am I going to, you know, I can't wear it. This isn't what I wanted. I felt like I got duped. 
I was deceived. I was lied to. Now, if I went back to the reward guide, it probably had dimensions of the product. It maybe even said mini boombox or whatever it said on the thing. But I was expecting a real boombox. I wanted the big sound. I blast my sound. You know, I wanted that thing. I felt so deceived. Have you ever felt that way before? Maybe with a prize or a product that you buy, you went out and you bought a Snuggie and it did not solve all of life's problems, right? The kind of deceptive, you know, a Floby, and now you're still going and getting a haircut or whatever it was that you purchased. You ever buy a product and it didn't live up to its expectations? But see, we almost expect that now, don't we? Because we live in a culture filled with deception. They're constantly marketing it. It's based on deception. I mean, they're gonna, they don't necessarily say that if you buy this product, everyone will like you. But sub, subconsciously, they're teaching you now, you buy something that everyone's around like, oh, it's so great that you bought that. And you buy it and you're like, I don't have any more friends than I did before. You know, whatever situation happens. Or, you, or if you buy this, it'll fulfill all your lungs, all your desires. If you buy this thing, if you had the new gold version X platinum type thing, then, then all of a sudden, that elusive happiness you've been searching for, you would obtain it. And we go out and we buy those things, and, and it's cool at first, and then it kind of fades off about six weeks later. We want a new one because they came out with part two, right? We're used to that deception. It happens all the time in our culture. There's cultural lies that are being fed to us on a regular basis. But isn't it really painful when it happens in relationships? You ever had somebody promise you something and they don't come through on their promise? Maybe you've had an employer promise you certain things at work, and then you get the job, and it's not what they said it was going to be. Maybe the benefits were different. Maybe the job was different. And that hurts a little bit, but it hurts even more when it becomes more personal. Maybe someone promises you a commitment, and they don't fulfill their commitment. Maybe someone promises you they'll be with you forever, and now you're at a stage of life where they're nowhere to be found. Maybe someone promised to protect you, and they actually abused you. Maybe someone promises that they're going to give to you and provide to you for you, and they've stolen from you, they've taken from you. See, no one here likes to be lied to, but we've all experienced it. It's a universal truth. No one likes to be lied to, which makes it ironic and interesting that we've all lied before. Is there anyone here who's never lied? Would you please raise your hand? Okay, because I want to make sure we're all covered, because you just did, okay? (laughs) We've all lied before. Every one of us have lied, and we have lots of reasons why. We justify and we rationalize, and we come up with all kinds of scenarios of why lying was actually the good thing to do in that situation. Well, somebody will say, you know, do I look fat in this? <laughs> you think, you don't want to know that, you can't handle the truth, and so you, you lie at that moment, or you, ask, you say somebody, hey, you got a nice haircut, new haircut. Yeah, do you like it? <laughs> what if you don't? You lie. And, and we say that we do it for their benefit, because they can't handle the truth, but we even lie to ourselves. It's just once. No one will know. It won't hurt anyone. It's not. It's just, I deserve this. We even lie to ourselves, which is interesting since we don't like to be lied to by anyone else. And it's real interesting when you consider as followers of Jesus Christ, we follow one who says that he is the truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the one who is ultimately true, holy, righteous, and just, apart from coming through me, who is the truth. And we claim that we follow him. There's no question that God is for truth. The question today for us is, are we... When you look at our lives, are they classified as lies that are for truth? Are we living a deception? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're back in the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book in the Old Testament. If you're just joining us in this series, Exodus chapter 20, we're looking at the ninth of ten commandments. We've been going through this series talking about what are we for and wondering ultimately if we claim to follow God, then what is he for? 
And we talked about some misperceptions that people oftentimes have about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes people think of them as just these rules that drop down from the sky that we're supposed to argue are supposed to be in the schools and in the classrooms and in the courtrooms and all these different places. We don't even know what they say. But these aren't rules that just drop down from the sky. And these don't have anything to do with you obtaining a relationship with God or making him happy with you. In fact, a relationship with God has been the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. It's by grace through faith. In the New Testament, by grace, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. And when you bow before him as Lord and you accept him by faith, you have a relationship with him. In the Old Testament, in this situation, it was by grace he recognized his people in Israel that have been in bondage for over 400 years. And it was by faith that they walked across the Red Sea and entered into a relationship with him. And about three months ago, they walked into this relationship of newfound freedom. And now what he's telling these people who already have a relationship with him, he's telling them how to function in that relationship. And what he does is he actually comes and speaks to these people. And if you read Exodus chapter 19, you know this is an intense scene as God who's transcendent and holy and righteous and majestic descends upon the earth And so in chapter 19, we see there's thunder rumbling and there's lightning that comes through the sky and he comes in fire. So there's this smoke that's encompassing this mountain called Mount Sinai and the earth doesn't know what to do with a holy God coming to it. So it's shaking violently and this trumpet sound comes. It starts going louder and louder and louder and God speaks to his people, not just Moses, all two million of them. And they're terrified and they're trembling. And look at what he says. Verse 1. God spoke to them. In verse 2, he said this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in the first week, we saw that he's a God that's for freedom. He just brought them out of 400 years of bondage. He didn't bring them out of bondage so they could come into more bondage, now bondage to rules, bondage to Egyptians, to bondage to rules. He brought them out of bondage so now they could walk in freedom. And freedom happens only when he is the Lord of our lives. And that's why he says this, you shall have no other gods before me, Because every other God will lead to bondage. The God of marriage, the God of uh, having somebody in your life because you don't want to be lonely, the God of sex, the God of money, the God of success, the God of achievement, the God of, you've put it in the blank, the God of service, the God of ministry, all of those things will ultimately lead you into bondage to them. But we have a God of freedom, and for real true freedom is not to do whatever you want to do. Ask anybody who does that. They're miserable. Real true freedom is to have God on the throne of your life, and that's why the next one makes so much sense. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And we saw there's no phonies. He's for the real thing. And the next commandment, drop down to verse 7. He's for the fame of his name. We wear his name as his followers. We represent him. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And the next one's an interesting one, verses 8 through 11, as he talks about the Sabbath. And we saw this is a unique commandment because it's unlike any of the other Ten Commandments. It's not mentioned in the New Testament. It's not commanded again. And God's not for a day. God's for rest. Real rest, soul rest that you can find in him. Some of you had a rough week. Did you find any rest in Christ? He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Real rest found in Christ. Not only is he for rest, those first four commandments all about our relationship with God. Now he starts to talk about our relationship from human to human. And he talks about the first human to human relationship any one of us have ever had with our parents. He says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. He's for honor. He's for life. You shall not murder. He's for sexual commitment. You shall not commit adultery. He's for generosity. You shall not steal. And today we see he's for truth. You shall not 
give false testimony against your neighbor. And so here we see the first time he mentions the word neighbor. Him talking about these relationships we have with people. We know our neighbors, not the person who lives next door to us, but from the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know that a neighbor is anybody that could come across our path. And he says here, don't lie. Why does he say don't lie? It's not just because he's against lying. It's because he's for truth. And why is God for truth then? And he's for truth because it's the very essence of his being. It's who he is. And that truth ultimately brings transformation in our lives. See, truth brings transformation. That's our first point. The truth is the thing that frees us from the deception. Truth is the thing that brings the light into the darkness. Truth is the thing that brings transformation. If you just think about this in your life in general... Every transformative or transforming moment, every crucial moment, everything that changed the directory of your life moment had a truth at the core of that moment. Think about when you were born. <laughs> can you remember that? <laughs> Think about this. It's an interesting question. Anyway, uh, you're brilliant if you can remember that. But your birth has a truth at the, the center of it. And the truth is this. It doesn't matter what your parents wanted, boy or girl. It doesn't matter what you wanted, you athletic, non-athletic, genius, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter what your goals and desires were. The core truth at the point of your birth is this, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God, and he got exactly what he wanted when he created you. So regardless of what you believe, God made something beautiful and wonderful at that moment. And so you can believe whatever it is you believe. You can believe what God says. And God says the core of that truth the truth at the core of that moment transforms everything because if that's not true, then maybe there's no plan for your life. Maybe you are a mistake. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe, and you can fill in the blank with all kinds of other things if you remove that truth. That truth transforms everything. Think about some other truths in your life, transformative moments in your life. Some of you have graduated from institutions, whether it's a high school, college, maybe some of you graduate schools. A core truth at the center of that moment is that you met certain requirements that institution had. If you didn't, that changes everything. There's a core truth that transforms everything. Some of you in here know what it is to, to be married to someone, fall in love with someone, the two become one. It's a picture of the gospel. It's an amazing thing. As a husband loves a wife and a wife submits to a husband, it's a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. And what a, a beautiful picture. But there's a core truth at that day when you get married. And the core truth is there's somebody else in this world who wants to spend the rest of their lives with you. If you remove that truth, it changes everything. See, there's truth at the core of all the transformation that takes place in our lives. And I bet the majority of you can recognize truth well. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give you a little true and false quiz. So if those of you who are guests, we talk here. So you can talk back to me. Okay? You don't have to like, take three questions to figure this out whether it's okay. Interact. You can go ahead and shout back to me. So I'm going to give you a true and false quiz. I'm going to say a statement. You're going to tell me whether it's true or false. So first statement has to do with gravity. Gravity pulls, not pushes. True or false? True. I got some hesitation. Some people are waiting for the majority answer there. I got it. But all right. Well, that's true. It is true that there's gravitational pull. It keeps us on this earth. Can you imagine if the gravity pushed? You know, we'd be in trouble, right? We'd be gone out of this place. And, and so that's true. It's a transformational truth. It changes the way we live. What about this next one? God will never leave you or forsake you. True or false? True. Imagine if that were not true. He wasn't there for you. What about when you feel lonely and it seems like he's not there? What if he really wasn't? He indwells us with his spirit. What if he really didn't? He puts other believers around us who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God himself. What if he didn't? What if we didn't have his word? What if he didn't have his promises? What if we were all alone? It would change everything. What about this one? God loves you. True or false? True. I don't think I heard any faults. The other night I was speaking at a men's meeting for Southbridge, and we did some anonymous um, kind of interaction Q&A. 
And 98% of the men at that meeting said that this is true. How sad for 2% that are either confused or deceived. Because if this isn't true, and God doesn't love you, that means why in the world would he ever send his son Jesus Christ to die for you? Why would he forgive your sins? And let me tell you something. If God didn't love us, we wouldn't be here. Because he'd wipe us out a long time ago for our wickedness and our depravity. But it's true. And truth is vitally important to him. And we see that in this passage. He says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't do that against someone else. You're my people of truth. He's speaking specifically to the community of Israelites, these two million people at this time. And he's telling them, he's given language of a courtroom. If you look at the Hebrew, it's, it's courtroom language that's being used here. And they do a good job of giving the testimony word, but it's specifically supposed to be what happens in court. Now, in order to understand that, you've got to understand this is different than courtroom settings in other ancient Near Eastern culture and very different from our culture. When we talk about courtrooms, some of you maybe picture certain lawyers that are high-profile lawyers or court TV or stuff you see on CNN or Fox or whatever channels of news you watch. And you start watching these things and you see there's like, you know, O.J. Simpson, Casey Anthony, all this stuff. And they've got 911 phone calls and they've got DNA and all kinds of stuff to like find old DNA. And if the glove doesn't quit, you've got to quit and all that kind of whatever, all that stuff. That's what our cultural perspective is in court cases. They don't have DNA. They didn't even have ghetto blasters back then, Okay. Not for some of you, that might be a long time ago. They didn't have any kind of 911 calls. They didn't have any kind of surveillance cameras. They didn't have any of that stuff. So can you imagine how important eyewitness testimony was? See, in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, the way that it worked was I could come up to anybody and just make an accusation against them. They could come up to me and make an accusation against me, and then we go to court. And if you just have these two people arguing, you've got he said, she, she said. Can you imagine how dangerous this is? But see, God so cared about truth that you read through the book of Deuteronomy, and he had different requirements than the other ancient Near Eastern cultures. His requirements are, and you read Deuteronomy chapter 17 or Deuteronomy chapter 19 on your own if you want to go further into this, but he said things like, there must be two or three witnesses. It can't be one person against another person. That's because he cares so much about the truth. And if you really want to grasp what it was like, try and put yourself in the situation. If you were one of the witnesses or you're an accuser of someone that did a crime, and it was a capital crime, meaning capital punishment was the punishment. And that wasn't just murder then. That could have been things like adultery, other stuff. And you accused someone of this. Then what you had to do is you had to execute that person as well. Tell me that wouldn't make you think a little bit carefully about what you said and maybe twice before you made the accusation. Are you sure? Because if you, you're going to be guilty not only of lying but of murder. See, God was serious about the truth. And so in our vernacular, that'd be like saying, not only are you going to have to give testimony against this person in court, but you need to flip the switch on the electric chair. That's a big deal. And then you also continue to read, and what it says is if you gave false testimony in a court case, and you were found out during the court case, whatever the punishment was going to be for that person that was on trial, that's your punishment. And so you may be put to death because you said something that wasn't accurate in a court case. See, God's very serious about the truth. But why? Why is God so serious about the truth? It's because it's the essence of his character and who he is. And it's not just specifically for courtroom cases, but it's generally in all walks of life. He wanted his covenant community people to be walking in truth because they're the people that bear his name, and he is truth. As I already mentioned, John 14, 6, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He prays at one point, I pray that they would be one as we are one. He's one with God, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is in his very essence and his character is truth. Later in John chapter 14, it talks about that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. 
And he says the spirit of truth. So the spirit, which is one with God the Father and one with God the Son, is truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. It's blinded by deception. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And what does the Spirit do? Later in John chapter 16, he says this, but when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and what he hears from the Father who is truth, and he will tell you what is yet to come, which will be the truth. And here we are. We live in a culture where we ask the question, what is truth? Like Pilate, when he's with Jesus, Jesus tells him the truth, and he says, what is truth? Jesus tells us, he's praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, and he says this, I pray, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, this place of deception, but that you protect them from the evil one who's the originator, the father, John chapter 8 tells us, the father of all lies, the originator of every deception. You'd protect them from the lies, you'd protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Do you want to know what truth is? Your word is truth. See, God's word is the thing that guides us into truth. His word is what renews our minds so that we know the truth. Would you believe the deceptions of the truth is what sets us free? In John chapter 8, we find that to be stated. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth is what we make our decisions based on. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The truth is what guides us, and he's given us his truth. The problem is we live in a culture with incredible deception. And it's not just commercials, and it's not just that we get lied to. But it's cultural lies that come continually. They come from the enemy. And at the root of each one of them is something other than God will satisfy you. Whether you're a people pleaser, if you're a people pleaser, then it's you think to yourself, if just enough people like me, that you'd be okay. And I was talking about this with some friends last night at dinner. And we were just talking about, no, 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 that doesn't work. Because if you're a people pleaser, and you know what I'm talking about, if you're a people pleaser, then as soon as one person doesn't like you, it doesn't matter how many other people do, now you've got to win that person over. And why is that? Now that person becomes God to you. Because they drive you, they control everything, they're on the throne of your life. And ultimately you think that you'll be satisfied if you could just win everybody over and you won't. It's a lie. And some people it's not that they're people pleasers, some people it's that if I could just have enough achievement, enough attainment, if I could get to these goals, if I could get this job, if enough people thought this of my reputation, if I had enough money, if I just weren't alone, if I could, and you fill in the blank with all these other deceptions that are out there and our culture is filled with deceptions. You know what ends up happening for the the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ? Those deceptions lead to a life of duplicity because we know that we're for the truth. I told you that in the intro. I don't think that most of you had any idea, any thoughts otherwise, that as believers in Jesus Christ, that we should be for the truth. The problem is the internal conflict that takes place when the reality is we actually live according to lies. When we claim to believe the truth, but we live according to something that's different. Something different drives our decisions, whether it's other people's opinions, whether it's success, whether it's money, whether it's sin, whatever it is. Those things drive us. Then we're inwardly conflicted. And the best picture of this in the scriptures, and of any case study ever, is Judas. Think about Judas. We talk about Judas. I mean, he's a bad guy in the scriptures, right? He betrays Jesus with a kiss, and we're for Jesus. He's against Jesus, and we don't like him, right? But think about what it'd be like to be Judas, Was there a moment in his life when he started to follow Jesus, when he genuinely was seeking the truth? He hears this guy who teaches with different authority than's ever been taught before. He sees them. Imagine what it was like to be Judas in this inward conflict and to be able to see Jesus touch the eyes of a blind man and he can see. Do you think he ever wondered, could you change what's going on in my heart? Because if you can do that, maybe you could change me. Because Judas, I mean, he goes out and he does ministry two by two. He sends them out. They do miraculous stuff. And Judas, he, he's there, and he's got to look the part. 
And to try and put that into our context, imagine what that's like. He, he was at every Bible study. Church was open. He was at church. He was serving because he goes out two by two. You know, he's serving. He's picking up garbage after the service is over with. He's at every, you know, he probably looks. I don't know what that would look like now. He's got, you know, khaki pants. He's got a sweater vest on. You know, I don't know what Judas looked like, but he's got Bible sandals, you know, or whatever. He's eating testaments. Uh, he looks the part, okay? He's going to the Bible studies. He knows all this truth. He sees Jesus. Every time Jesus teaches, he's there. He even says the right things. A couple weeks ago in first service, we were talking about Judas and how there's a situation where this woman comes and pours a year's wages worth of perfume on Jesus' feet, and Judas says, that money could have been given to the poor. Doesn't that sound right? But the problem is Judas doesn't care about the poor. Judas cares about Judas. The reason why he's around Jesus is what Jesus can do for him. He's a cultural Christian, the ultimate picture. Imagine the conflict in his heart of trying to keep everybody thinking that he's for the truth. And there's this deception that's driving him and he'd sell Jesus out for some pieces of silver. And for some of us, our cost is not pieces of silver. It might be just if we could find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. It might be if we could just get the job, if we could get the reputation, if we had this much money, if we could just, and it's the lie that's driving our lives. How conflicted is that? It leads to duplicity. Let's talk about the gentleman in our church, Jim Hendren. He told me I could share a story. If you know Jim's story, he's got an, a crazy story. Fifteen years ago, before he came to Jesus, addicted to cocaine, uh, you live in a life around the outside, it probably looked like he had things together, driving a nice car, doing all that kind of stuff. But he talked about the duplicity in his life with me. We were just chatting. And he actually had so many lies going on in his life at one point. He had two journals to keep track of all the lies he had. Lies at work. He was mar- before he was married to you, you might know his wife Kathleen. Before he was married to Kathleen, he was married to another woman. He had lies for her, lies for his girlfriend, and the adulterous affair that he was involved with. All the, he had to write them all down because he didn't confuse himself with all the lies he had. And he was a mess. He was miserable. Can you imagine that, to be at that place? I heard a story of a guy this week that had been married for 21 years and for about 20 years had been visiting prostitutes and then coming home and being a Mr. Family Guy and didn't say anything for 20-some years. Can you imagine the inward conflict of that? Some of you here know that conflict. And maybe you're having an affair, maybe you're not having an affair. Maybe you got an addiction, maybe you don't have it. Maybe you're not at the level where you need a journal. But you know what it's like to live duplicity, to live two lives in essence. There's the internal life of what's reality, and then there's the outside life of what you want to be reality. Isn't that miserable? See, deception always leads to duplicity. But not only does deception always lead to duplicity, deception without exception, this is an absolute truth, deception always leads to destruction. And we all think that we'll be the exception. (laughs) But there's no exception. Deception always leads to destruction. And you go back to the Garden of Eden, (laughs) the original lie, the very first lie that took place. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve's in the garden, and the serpent comes up and starts talking to her. (laughs) First of all, the serpent starts talking to her. Process that for a moment. Like trying, I try to put myself into Bible stories. I was blowing off leaves in my backyard the other day, and the girls were out there. They're running around playing. If a snake come up, I'd be gone. If the snake started talking, there's no way I'm sticking around, okay? But I try to grasp what Eden was like. Apparently, it was a lot like a Disney movie because all the animals are talking, and that's normal. There was no other normal, so that just it was. That's what it was. And so the snake comes up, starts talking to Eve, says, God said that you can't eat of any of the trees. He's already lying. He's the father of lies. It's all that can come out of his mouth is deceit, accusation. She says, no, no, no. It's not that we can't eat any tree. It's that we can't eat of this one tree. Now he's got her focus on the forbidden fruit. 
You remember James chapter 1 and verse 13 as we see the cycle of sin? Each one is led astray, is led away. When they're enticed, they see the bait. And by their own evil desires, it's not because of your childhood, it's not because of something that happened to you, it's not because our culture has so many lies, it's our responsibility. By our own evil desires, we start to think in our minds about the sin, and then we decide we're going to go for it, and it conceives in James chapter 1. And it gives birth, and ultimately the birth leads to death. Do you remember what happens in the garden? And Satan says to her, surely you won't die. You're not really going to die. I mean, God, you're the exception. Or... It's not, he's not that, he understands your heart, he, he knows your intentions, you just want to be like him. Do you remember the deception? Surely you won't die. You eat of the tree and you'll know good and evil and you'll be like God. Was she? Was she like God or did now, did she die and we die? And there's disease and there's tragedy and there's travesty and there's duplicity and there's destruction and there's deceit and there's hurricanes and there's tsunamis and there's AIDS and there's cancer and there's divorce and there's abuse, there's extreme poverty. It always leads to destruction. And if you don't think that's true in every case, there's a university in our country you can call and ask them if deception leads to destruction. It always leads to destruction. Why? Because the Satan, the enemy, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And there's a battle between light and darkness that we oftentimes don't see because we get caught up in the daily grind. And God brings truth and he brings deception and we have to decide who we're going to follow. The answer, the answer is simple. The answer is truth. The answer is truth because truth transforms everything. Every transformative moment in your life at the core of that is truth because truth brings transformation. And think about the people he's speaking to, these two million Israelites and how truth has transformed their lives. They were living in slavery. They were in bondage. And then this burning bush experience happens for Moses. The context for Genesis chapter or Exodus chapter 20 is really Exodus chapter 3 where God comes and he speaks to Moses and he gives him a promise. He says, I've seen my people, and I've seen their bondage. He's seen your bondage, too. And he knows everything that's going on in your life, too. And he says, I've heard their cries, but it's been 400 years. Why did he wait so long, and he didn't do it my way, and not according to my time, but he's come. And now he makes a promise, and he promises Moses, I'm going to deliver my people. And Moses hymns and haws and talks about how he's not able, and blah, 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 all that stuff happens. And then God says, no, you go, and here's what I want you to do. Go before Pharaoh. He goes before Pharaoh, and he talks to Pharaoh, says, my people, they want to go worship. It's kind of noble. He's going to be the leader, right? And then Pharaoh says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take straw away from the people. We still want them to meet the same quota. So we're going to give you a fraction of the materials. We're going to work you twice as hard, and you're still going to meet, and if you don't, you're going to be beaten. And so they've got a promise now, and their life just got worse. Do you think that they struggle with the prosperity gospel in the book of Exodus? Get under the spout where the blessings come out. <laughs> Rolling in my Mercedes. You know, they don't do that stuff. They're like, God made a promise, now my life stinks. And so they start complaining to Moses, and Moses goes to God, and Moses says, God, surely you didn't deliver your people. And then God says, I'm going to deliver my people, but he's going to do it his way and his time, and he's got a plan for his people. He doesn't want his people to be soft. And he starts doing this thing for his people where he starts showing off his power against all the false gods that the Egyptians are worshiping. There's all these plagues. Was that easy to go through? No way. But when they walked through that Red Sea, they knew a God that could fulfill promises. When they walked through the Red Sea, they knew a God who was going to be faithful to them even when they were faithless. When they walked through the Red Sea, they knew that there was a God that would never leave them or forsake them. When they walked through the Red Sea, they knew freedom. Now he's talking to them about how to live in freedom. 
And what he's saying is, I am a God of truth. I am for truth. And I stand at the very transformative moment of your life, at the core of that is truth. And the truth is gospel truth. It's that he's a God that delivers and that rescues and that redeems. And he pulls them out of that bondage so that there's no more condemnation in their lives so now they can walk in freedom. You see, that what transforms us is gospel truth. It's what's transformed my life. I remember when I was 18 years old, punk kid, high school student. I thought life was meaningless. I thought life was empty. You just go out and have fun, live for pleasure. And a guy named Mike Thomas sits down, shares the gospel with me, tells me about my sin. That was pretty depressing. <laughs> Didn't have to convince me, but it was depressing. Then he tells me about Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully God, fully human, comes to this earth, lives a perfect life so that when he dies on the cross for the sins, he's able to die for my sins, takes upon the wrath of God so that I can know God. And he raises and he offers this gift of life because he defeats death. And not that day, but several days later, I, I, I trust Jesus Christ to be my Lord where he's in charge of my life. And you know what? He transformed my life at that moment, but it didn't stop at that moment. Because the gospel doesn't just save sinners. The gospel transforms followers. It's gospel truth that's the key to transformation. It's gospel truth that brings out of deception into redemption. It's gospel truth that brings out of darkness into light. It's gospel truth that will transform you from a place of bondage and duplicity and deception. See, gospel truth breaks the bondage of duplicity and deception. That's our second point. It's gospel, it's not just any truth, it's gospel truth that transforms, that takes us out of, that frees us from, breaks the bondage of duplicity and destruction. It's why even in the Old Testament, you see this being stated in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 23, a father speaking to his son, and the father says to him, buy the truth. You do whatever you have to do to go get the truth, because the truth transforms. And you see it in the lives of people that are living in duplicity, that are living a life of destruction. You see a David, and David's a guy in the Old Testament, he was a king. He should have been out battling. He wasn't out battling. Instead, he sees this girl. He wants to have sex with her. She's married. Doesn't matter. Brings her in. Has sex with her. And then what ends up happening is now he's got to cover this deal up. He's, he's a guy that's described in the scriptures, a man after God's own heart. He can't just let everybody know. He's written psalms and these songs that they would sing and worship. He's leading the nation to God. But he knows there's this sin. And there's a time period. that Oftentimes we don't talk about the time period because when you read this, it's in a couple chapters. There's a time period where he goes through this cover-up scandal. What do you think that's like? What do you think the inward conflict of that is like? And he has Uriah killed, her wife, or her, her husband, Bathsheba the woman. Do you think he wonders to himself, do, do my military leaders, do they know why I did what I did? What about the guards that were there the night that I had her come in? Have they told anybody? And what do they think? Do you think David ever thought to himself, there are multiple people that know and no one cares about me enough to tell me the truth. Did you ever put yourself in David's place? Did you ever think he looked at some of those people and thought, how pathetic are you that you know this and you won't do anything about it because you don't care enough about the truth? But there was one guy. His name was Nathan. And Nathan, he cared more about God and he cared more about David than he cared about himself. And he comes before David who could kill him. He tells him this story, this parable-like story. And when David hears the story, he's irate. And then Nathan says, you're the man. You're the guy in the story. And he breaks. And we see a man who knows both bondage to deception and freedom and forgiveness. And he talks about it in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit there's no deceit. 
when I kept silent, and this is how it feels, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For a day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Stop and think about that, Selah. You ever talk to somebody who's in an affair, in an addiction, pursuing something that they know is not the best pursuit for them? This is how it feels. And they'll tell you that. And David's telling us that. But then he says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. I'll get honest. That's what confession is. It doesn't mean you're perfect all of a sudden. It means you're perfectly honest. I will get honest with you and I'll deal with my stuff. And you forgive the guilt of my sin. Stop and think about that. And then there are those of us who don't think that we have any sin. John tells us that we're liars. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, not verse 9, verse 8, says if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar, you deceive yourself. We live a life like the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul, before he came to know Jesus, he thought he was doing everything right. As for righteousness, he was zealous. He knew the word. He, knew, he had stuff memorized. He knew all kinds of stuff. He's out persecuting the church, and Jesus says, what are you doing? And at the core of that truth where he's confronted by Jesus Christ, who is Lord, not his own righteousness, not trying to be a religious guy, not trying to do all the right stuff. It's transformation that takes place, and then he's able to say in Philippians chapter 3, I forget what's behind, I press on towards what is ahead to achieve the goal, the prize. You know what the prize is? It's Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. If you're longing and desires anything other than that, you're being deceived. Because at the root of deception is that something other than Jesus will satisfy you. And if you believe that, and it can be simple, as much as a reputation, or a car, or or a house, or, or some other thing, people's opinions of you. If it's anything other than Jesus, you're being deceived. That I'll know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. That I want to know him, because only he will satisfy. Amen? Because he is true, because he is the truth, and we're the people of the truth, and so then the truth should set us free. Does the truth set us free? Because the reality is, let's be honest, we can amen the verse that God gives us truth, and the truth sets us free, but are we free? Because a lot of us, we know truth, and we go to Bible studies, and we know the Bible, but there's an inward conflict that's going on in our lives, and let's just be candid, because it's just any good to make it through this service, okay? Let's just be honest before the God of the universe, and, and say that some of us are conflicted inside, there's a duplicity that takes place, and we're fearful that maybe it's leading us to destruction, but you know what, I was reading a guy, Colin Smith has a book on the Ten Commandments I was reading this week, and he talks about the John chapter 8 verse, and I hadn't thought about it in the way that I thought about it when I, when I saw it this week. Look at it in the New Living Translation, we'll put it up for you. Jesus says this, before the verse, the next verse is going to be that the truth sets you free. Then that's a great political speech, but let's, let's see what Jesus says it. Jesus said, the people who believed in him, the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you listen to podcasts. If you go to Bible study or in a community group or do something, right? If you remain faithful, if you obey my teaching. None of you know information, but if you do the information, in fact, he says it before you even have the information in your head. Just live out my truth. It seems backwards. He's saying paradoxically here, if you remain faithful to my teaching, then what will happen? And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Not because you have a degree in the truth. Not because you've been doing enough Bible studies or gone to church your whole life or you do this thing. Not because of any of that stuff. If you will do the truth, you'll acquire a new appetite. And the appetite will be for me. And that's ultimately what will satisfy you. You'll stop believing the lies and feeding on the junk. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to do the truth? Well, first of all, we've got to get honest with ourselves. Because sometimes we lie to ourselves. 
And it can be simple lies, like it's just once, no one will know, it doesn't hurt anybody, it can be that kind of stuff, but we've been living our lives according to lies, some of us, after achievement, after success, after other people's opinions, after reputation, after those things that ultimately are deceptive. And we get, we've been lying to ourselves so much that we start to believe that stuff. You've got to get honest with yourself and say to God, like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, search me and know me and show me if there's any offensive way in me. And be honest. That's what confession requires, honesty. We get honest with ourselves, we get honest with God. Because when we deceive ourselves, you can't pull one past God, okay? There's no like magic trick, sleight of the hand type deal. You can't do that. He uh, knows everything. There's big words for that, but he knows everything. So we're fooling ourselves. We think we can fool him. We've got a bad perception of who he is. But sometimes what I think we do is we convince ourselves of our lives so much that we're actually thinking that we're being honest before him. We're lying to him. And to get honest with him will require repentance. And if anyone claims that they don't have any sin, John already told us in John chapter 1, verse 8, that we're liars, we deceive ourselves, but if we will confess, let's get honest about our sin. He's faithful, and he is just, and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's not what we do. So we've got to get honest with God, and also get honest with each other. If you look through the scriptures, you see here in this very passage, these are two million people living in community with one another, a covenant community. The gospel is always to be lived out in a covenant community. That's a group of other people that are believers. You see the gospel in the New Testament. It's to be lived out, not just with Jesus, with his 12 disciples, but you see in the epistles, you see that we're supposed to live, love one another, forgive one another, confess to one another, confront one another, meet with one another. All these one another's of scripture, you can't do those on your own. And so the scripture was meant to be lived out in a community, but it's a community that's guided by truth. And that truth is going to be where people that are able to tell the truth with one another. And we're real honest with one another. There are a lot of phony Christians, aren't there? Amen. amen. All right. We got one amen. One honest guy. I can't see you because of the lights. So anyway, but anyway, they're, we're, we're being honest. There's, there's people that are phony, and because of the phoniness, and maybe they're, they're trying to be sincere, but they're not. You don't feel like you can be honest with them. Let me tell you the best thing you can do for them. Speak the truth in love. I'm trying to tear them down. I'm trying to bash them. You say, listen, there's some things that you do say that come across in such a way, I don't know that I can trust you. And this is a one-on-one conversation. This isn't with your whole community group, by the way. But you need to be living life with some other people that you can tell the truth to. Do you have people you can confess sin to in your life? Do you have people that you can confront in sin and they know you still love them? Do you have people that, that you're willing to bear their burdens, actually carry their burdens with them? The majority of people don't have that. And we need to have that. That's a real tangible step for leaving this place. And it's not just, I wish I had that Christianity so bad because I don't have that. No, it's on you. You need to make that known that you want that. And you need to take some steps to pursue that. And that can be in our community groups, in our church. You, you want a community? We're trying to create an environment for that. You're in a group where you don't feel like you can be honest with each other? Tell them. And go find another group. We won't change. We got in our men's ministry, we've got men's small groups where men are coming together, getting honest about sin, repentance, and how to walk in truth. Women, we got a women's ministry. You can involve that. Jim Hendren, I mentioned to you, you know, he said that Celebrate Recovery, he's a leader in Celebrate Recovery. He said that the key to their ministry is this taking lies, replacing them with truth. So there's a whole ministry at our church. It meets on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock, Celebrate Recovery, that's designed around this idea of combating lies in our culture and in our lives that we've been believing and battling them with truth. It's not just for people that are alcoholics. It's codependency, all kinds of issues, shopaholics, all kinds of stuff that you go deal with there. You deal with, you've got lies in your life, that's a great place to go. You can't meet on Thursday nights, they've got small groups that meet throughout the week. You need to take tangible steps to relationships and the truth. You need to get honest with yourself, get honest with God, and get honest with other people. God, there's no doubt he's for truth. The question is, are we? Let's pray. Father God, your word is truth. Please sanctify us with truth. Please watch over us today with your truth. God, each one of us has sin that we could bring before you and repent. I pray we'd repent right now.
God, we repent of individual sins that we have in our lives, of anger, of lust, of pride, of selfishness. Ultimately, almost all of our sins rooted in our selfishness. God, we want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love ourselves so much. God, will you make us deny ourselves, follow you. God, will you give us the mind of your son Jesus, the eyes of your son Jesus, the heart of your son Jesus Christ, that we might connect people to your son Jesus. We repent corporately for churches that sometimes we just want to play games and we just want to feel good and we just want to do whatever. God, make us about your truth in such a way that we would transform this culture, not because we have picket signs and point fingers, but because we love them to your son, Jesus Christ, that we lead with grace and always give the truth. We love you, Father. We thank you for your grace. Please wash over us with your word and with your truth. And if there are any lies being believed at this moment, just block them. Block the enemy from this place and allow us to be a place of truth and honesty, God. Your word is truth. Give us your peace. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.